This is The Guardian. Yesterday, video of a secret war crime committed in the early years of the Syrian civil war was leaked to two researchers who spent years investigating the footage until they found the man responsible. And to their surprise, when they sent him a message, he called them. When you saw that he was calling you, what did you think? I was very excited. I wanted to see the guy to confirm that it's him. Who is it? How he speak? What he's gonna tell us? And so did you answer? I did answer. Kifat. And I smiled. <laughs> Hello. How are you? Today, how those two academics talked their way into the heart of one of the darkest corners of the Syrian government and what they found hidden there. Before we start, a heads up. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence. If you're feeling in any way sensitive, especially with everything going on in the world right now, you might want to save this one and come back to it later. When I first heard this story of these two academics who had found a video of a war crime and then managed to contact the perpetrator, a Syrian government intelligence agent, I got a bad feeling. I thought, these two are in over their heads. This is the stuff that MI6 or the CIA try to do, not social scientists at a research institute. It was halfway through our first day in Amsterdam, meeting Uyer and Ansa and learning about their investigation that I realised I was completely wrong. We didn't mention this yesterday, but... Ansar told us something surprising. The hunt for the man in that terrible video of a massacre in Syria. It wasn't the first time she and Uya had tracked down a Syrian regime official or interviewed one. How many people did Anna interview? We didn't count. I don't count, I mean, I think 200, something like that. 200 perpetrators? Huh? Some of them a couple of times, some of them just short call. Some of them we interviewed them for uh, four years almost, yeah. Uya and Ansa may have been academics at a research institute, but we didn't realise there was another person in the room with us in Amsterdam. Anna. (laughs) Anna S., an alter ego Uya and Ansa had created a woman who only existed online and whose pictures, whose whole personality they had carefully designed to convince some of the Syrian regime's most hardened operatives to break all their codes of silence and talk. Hello? Hello. Hello, Alhamdulillah. Posing as a supporter of the Syrian regime, 
Anna S. had spent four years interviewing Syrian intelligence agents, soldiers, government officials, and she recorded everything. Including her calls with one of the worst perpetrators she had ever come across, the man in the green fatigues and fishing hat with the scar above his right eyebrow, the one who had committed an appalling massacre captured on video, Someone she'd been calling the Shadow Man until she learned his real name, Amjad Yusuf. This is the story of a stunning years-long undercover operation that unearthed a war crime and the quiet, unassuming woman at the centre of it. Yeah, it was difficult, but then uh, the first couple of months, then you, you'd be happy with your success. The more success you get, the more interviews you get, you're more attached actually, to the, this figure called Anna. So when I opened the laptop, it's Anna, the researcher. It's part of me. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, investigating a war crime, part two. The life and death of Anna S. Yeah, um, well, um, when we... Uh, first met. Uh, we met Uyo Ungo yesterday. He's a professor uh, we, of genocide studies uh, based in Amsterdam. Shared, he and Ansar Shahoud first started working together a few years ago. Ansar was born and raised in Syria. She was living in the city of Homs when the revolution started in 2011. She'd been part of the protests. But soon, like hundreds of thousands of Syrians, she fled for her safety to Europe, where she'd become a graduate student. And she and Uyo bonded over their shared interest in studying not just the victims of Syria's awful civil war, but the men committing the massacres, designing the torture programs, the perpetrators of the violence. This was heavy, emotionally taxing work, and for obvious reasons, not easy to do. The problem was that the, the Assad regime is very difficult to, to study, to research. Uh, you don't just walk into Damascus, uh, you know, waving your arms, saying, "Well, hey, I'm a sociologist from Amsterdam, and I would like to ask some questions." So how, how so how can we approach it? And, and then we came to the conclusion that actually we need a character, uh, and that character should be a young Alawite woman. Alawites are the religious sect that dominates Syria's government. The president Bashar al-Assad belongs to this clan as do much of his top army and intelligence staff. Really, if you want to get answers, it should be from an Alawite background. So then we, um, we basically baptized her Anna, uh, and uh, the story took off from there. They told us in the last episode that, and I'm still trying to get my head around this, hundreds, possibly thousands, of Syrian regime intelligence agents are very active users of Facebook, and that... Despite working for one of the most shadowy intelligence services in the Middle East, in many cases, their skills in secrecy don't extend to making their Facebook accounts private. And so, Facebook was where Anna S. did the majority of her undercover work, which meant she needed a profile picture that Syrian regime officials would immediately trust. They gave Anna a necklace, including a pendant with Ali's sword, a symbol that would be instantly recognisable as Alawite, and one more feature that she knew these guys would find intriguing. Uh, we showed just part of my face. 
So they will be eager to know who is actually the guy or the woman in this profile. They would want to see the rest of your face. They want to see my uh, the rest of God, my God, you're really relying on how predictable men are in general, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, yes. Yeah. Otherwise, the page is basically a shrine yes. to the Syrian dictator, Bashar al-Assad, and his family. And you can see that we don't, we boast nothing. And, uh, just photo of uh, Hafiz al-Assad and... Uh, so at this, this point, on social media, Anjad. there was no more Ansar Shahood, just Anna S. Anna would spend her days scraping the pro-Assad corners of Facebook for accounts that looked like they might belong to intelligence agents and other perpetrators that Ansar and Uya were interested in studying. She would add them as friends, and if they accepted, she'd give them the spiel. I'm a Syrian woman, a research student in the Netherlands, studying the Syrian regime for my thesis. And she told us, over time, she was getting really good at it. I wasn't pretending about my knowledge or my, uh, my research. I wasn't lying about everything. Well, I'm, lying about, I'm lying about aspects of my, my work, which is the purpose of the research, my background. And lying about my background, it's not, all, not because I want to lie about my background. I would love to talk to Amjad as Ansar, not as uh, Anna. I'm forced to do that, first for his protection and second for my protection. Interview by interview, she and Uya refined the character, made Anna S more empathetic, more patient, learning the kind of jokes that Syrian government officials liked, the gossip they were interested in, exactly when to leave a silence and when to talk. All of it aimed at drawing the men out, earning their trust. In fact, in, in fact some, some of these perpetrators, they... They felt like Anna was a shoulder to cry on. They got attached to Anna. And they, in the end, they, they started calling, sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, when, when, when she was sleeping. And then we, it, it kind of became the character, became a bit of a hot potato. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? Because you have all these killers who are like, you know, rushing, as if you're a therapist or something, that they want to get, the, you know, get, get this burden off their, off their chests. They needed to talk to someone. They needed to express. They need to share their experience. And this, is, this part was very important. We, we are actually, and we wanted to listen to your experience. We don't want to judge you. Because of that, we laughed with them. Uh, we shared some stories with them. We listened to all their stories, uh, not focusing only on their crimes. She didn't just interview Syrian intelligence agents. Ansar did her PhD on medical genocide, the role of Syrian doctors in the crimes against humanity that the regime was committing. Ansa, or Anna, convinced dozens of doctors to talk about their crimes, their motivations, how they lived with themselves, and how they couldn't. In early 2019, Uyo showed Ansa the video he had seen in Paris, one of the worst videos I've ever seen, of the soldier with a scar on his right eyebrow, leading nearly a dozen men to the edge of a pit and shooting them dead. The first video evidence of the Syrian army committing a mass execution of civilians and filming it as a trophy. And Uya and Ansar knew they and Anna were the perfect people to investigate it. The first time Amjad had called them, the day they finally tracked him down and added him on Facebook, they didn't get very far. Amjad was suspicious, didn't stay on the phone long. But three months later, he asked to speak again. And this time, they were ready. With Uya sitting nearby, off screen, 
Ansa pressed record. And then Anna answered. <laughs> and after a nearly three-year search, suddenly, there he was, Amjad. That boyish face, a little sunburned, the scar on his eyebrow. His eyes soft, but occasionally flickering with something darker. The energy in these first moments is awkward. Amjad leaves these long silences between answers. He just stares at Anna, hard through the screen. When he finally talks, he can be hard to hear. Unlike Anna, he's not projecting to make himself heard. This wasn't a guy who needed to make himself heard. The people he interrogated, who might be blindfolded, in pain, terrified, they'd be listening very closely, doing everything they could to hear him. And he's interrogating Anna. He tilts his chin up, takes a long drag from his cigarette. When are you coming to Syria? He asks her. Who are your friends? Maybe I know them. Anna smiles widely back at him. She has just a hint of glee in her voice. She shrugs in an exaggerated way and laughs at things that aren't really jokes. It's like she's straining to show how relaxed she is, how much these questions don't bother her. And gradually, she starts to break the tension in a way that's really incredible to watch. She wants to talk to Amjad about his experiences in Tadaman, the neighbourhood where he committed the massacre. She tells him she wants to tell the story of the government's side, which is also Anna's side. You don't need to ask me all these questions, Amjad tells her. It's all known what we did, what the army did. <laughs> she makes a big mock expression of exasperation. I can't tell my supervisor at university that it's all already known, she says, and bursts out laughing. And I swear, this mass murderer, he goes a little red. He leans back, the camera wobbles a bit. It's like, in that moment, something shifts in the dynamic. And for the rest of the conversation, it's Anna interviewing him, trying to convince Amjad to talk to her, tell her what the war was like from his perspective, what it was like to go hungry, not to sleep, to fight, to kill, to fear for your parents, for your people. It's a huge responsibility. You carried a lot on your shoulders. At those words, Amjad's hard expression breaks. He suddenly looks at Anna, raises his eyebrows warily, as if to say, you have no idea. And suddenly, he looks so young. Every argument he makes over the next few minutes for not talking, she has a response. The war is over, he says. It's finished. Yes, she replies. But at the end of the day, it's a war for how it'll be remembered. I wouldn't even know what to tell you, he says. Well, she says. For example, little details, like what daily life was like on the front line. Moments of face-to-face killing. She looks up now, as if she's thinking on the spot. Like how you used to interact with civilians. Those kinds of details. 
At one stage, Amjad tells her, actually, he wasn't just any agent. He had responsibilities. He was on the front lines. <laughs> okay, And Anna, with surprise, says, wow, and literally rubs her hands together in joy. Watching this footage, I realized that this was meant to be the big reveal of Amjad. But as the minutes went by, I wasn't really looking at Amjad anymore. I was looking at Anna. One thing that strikes me watching this is, is, is you, Ansa, you're like, uh, you're, you're like, you're like girlish. You're laughing, you're, you're smiling at him. You're very, I mean, you're very charming, but you're also very charmed by him. What does it take to be able to put that on in the face of someone, I mean, who has raped and killed and whose victims you've actually interviewed? First, we, I'm not a judge. I'm a researcher. Um, I want to know his story. Um, so uh, I don't deny that I was excited talking to him. So I was smiling because, wow, we are talking to him. But to, to know their stories, we need to, to convince them that we are uh, just a researcher. And uh, so they get to open, to open up. Uh, it's not the result of one interview, it's a result of four years of work undercover. My first interview was uh, <laughs> was very bad because I, I wasn't able to convince them. I was feeling resentment towards the perpetrators, but gradually I, I learned to dissociate myself. It's tough things. After you close the laptops, you feel like, yeah, it's a heavy stuff but it's needed. And I, I wanted to see him as a human. And I wanted him to tell the story as a human. I can't see him as an, just an evil guy, uh, rather a human who did an evil, evil deeds. Judging them, you are not gonna take any information. You are not gonna understand their deeds. And I'm here to understand. I wasn't the only one impressed. Martin Chulov, The Guardian's Middle East correspondent, knows a bit about how real intelligence agencies work. And he knew what he was watching in that footage. This is absolutely a counterintelligence operation. You know, this is what it is. It is. Yeah, no, it is. It's the only way to approach these people. Over the next few months, Ansa and Uya kept pressing Amjad to talk, trying to gather more evidence about the Tadaman massacre. At the same time, they were scraping his Facebook profile, scrolling back through the years, cataloging everything he'd ever posted about, the gym selfies, the pictures of his newly decorated house, very pink, but also his brother. His kid brother was killed uh, in combat a couple of months before uh, this massacre happens. He, Amjad, he suffers this, uh, the, the loss of his, uh, of his brother. He writes poetry about his kid brother on Facebook. Could, you, could one of you read the poem? Uh, a lamentation, basically, for his for his brother. He says that, uh, you know, I lost part of my soul. I lost somebody who was impossible to forget. 
Working with people on the ground, including many of Amjad's victims, Uya and Ansa built a picture of the crimes the Syrian government had committed in Tadamit. They made maps of sites where they believed more bodies were buried, heard evidence of thousands of forced disappearances, of sexual assaults, of people who had been enslaved to work for the regime. And they persuaded more regime agents to talk. Ansar learned that Syrian security officials liked to call after midnight when work was done, their neighbourhoods were still, and maybe the sudden lull in activity made them lonely and the memories they carried with them felt heavier. But Amjad was vague about taking another call, hard to catch, until the 10th of June last year, around midnight, when Ansar was speaking with another Syrian agent and she got a missed call. Typical, she thought. It was a power move. A guy like Amjad doesn't make appointments. He just calls when he wants. And as soon as she could, Ansar called him back. It's a different scene this time. Amjad looks like he's at home. He's in a white undershirt. He looks relaxed. To be honest, he looks a little drunk. He has a dazed smile. There are elections recently in Syria. If you didn't vote, we don't want you back, he says. He asks about her family, brothers, if she has any sisters. It's silent on both ends of the call, and there are long pauses between them, pregnant with something. It feels like he's called for a reason, but he doesn't want to rush into it. And eventually... It becomes clear. He's calling to let off steam, complain about work. He's been taken off the front line into Darman, moved to an office job. He's not happy about it. So much of what he did during the war was a secret, he says. And these new, younger guys come in. They think they know everything. They don't know what we did, the sacrifices we made. He brags a little. She acts impressed. Anna's staring at Amjad warmly, not rushing to fill the silences. They try to guess each other's ages. Her cat wanders onto the screen. At one stage, in Amsterdam, I looked at Ansa while she was playing us this video. She was elbowing Uya and rolling her eyes as if to say, this guy's too easy. Amjad's in a melancholy mood and Anna sees an opportunity. She asks about his brother, who died in the war a few months before the massacre in Tadaman. And Amjad starts to share the story and he starts to cry. He couldn't resign from the military to spare his family the possible death of another son, he tells her. He had responsibilities. She's sympathetic. You did what you needed to do, she says. And then he says it. 
the closest or your answer get to a confession. I took revenge, Amjad tells her. I won't lie to you. I killed a lot. He repeats it a few seconds later. I killed a lot. A lot. Amjad's words hang in the air for a few seconds. And as if he's realised what he's said now, the gravity of it, he collects himself, calms down, gets back to joking around, and the call tapers off. This was one of the last times Ansa and Uya would get to speak to Amjad face to face. But they still chatted on Facebook Messenger. He kept wanting to know, when are you coming back to Syria? But as 2021 went on, Ansa started to feel like she was getting to the limits of what Anna could do. She'd been a sympathetic ear for people who had committed, who were still committing, terrible, soul-destroying acts. And Amjad, big surprise, was getting difficult to manage. He was like a jealous boyfriend. He'd want to know where she was all the time, who she was meeting with, if she was drinking or not. It started to feel suffocating. And to do that for years and years, I mean, does that have an impact on you? Like to kind of pretend to be all of these different people in very high pressure, precarious situations. Does that have an impact on the original answer? Sure, yeah. Uh, I forget to talk to normal people. So you forget how to be normal in the normal society. So some friends give up talking to me and saying, you are talking about the same things. I lost my social contact. I've become lonely uh, for uh, for a couple of years. No, uh, yeah, we were because um, I mean the loneliness is partly also because you can't share this information with a really wide context. I mean, it's not like you know polite birthday party conversation to speak about perpetrator research, uh, and yet it has to be done. So you basically suffer the consequences. It was near the end of last year that Ansa finally had enough. There was a moment. She was talking to a woman who Amjad himself had sexually assaulted. And Ansa felt like something inside her snapped. For years, she had suppressed the side of herself that was disgusted by men like Amjad. All of a sudden, the wall that kept those feelings out felt like it just couldn't hold anymore. Um, I think... Um... The, the, the empathy to perpetrators I had sometimes, I kind of lost the, uh, the view of how they brutal could, can be. Imagine you are uh, um, yeah, working, thinking, and training Anna most of the time. So there were no space for answer. Then we took a decision and said, we should stop Anna. Why? Because also Ansar deserved to live. And then the question was, where is Ansar? <laughs> who is Ansar now? Lost in the research, yes. But uh, who is Ansar? And um, who is Anna to Ansar? 
uh, Anna was able to pretend in life and go as an Alawite and pretend for hours here in Amsterdam. I think Anna went so far. It's not only a digital identity. Where is the original <laughs> person and all of this? Where is Ansar? So I decided to execute Anna. So that's exactly what we're doing now. She was a good use. Thank you for your service. I mean, psychologists and therapists will tell you that if you, if you have a, a particularly difficult period, you can mark that period with a ritual. So ritualizing something actually helps you put it behind you. So we, we decided to, well, to bury Anna, basically. So we got a little box, and then we printed out the profile uh, of Anna. We put a couple of mementos in there, such as that um, sword of, uh, of Ali, for example, that, that, that we had taken, you know, trinkets. Uh, we put it in the box, and we sealed the box, and then we drove it to uh, a forest outside of Amsterdam on a cold day. I brought a spade, so I dug a grave. <laughs> we chucked it in there and then we covered it up and then we stood there for like one minute of silence. Bye bye. In that minute of silence, what were you both thinking about? I thought actually good riddance. So that's, I mean, I mean, that's what I felt. I felt like good riddance. There's a period we closed off. Now let's get back to our normal lives, who we really are. Yeah. I don't know what you felt. Yeah, I think it's, um, it was time for, um, to focus on studying these materials we collected. Do you ever miss her? I, I laugh about her all the time. Anna used to do that. <laughs> and we always remember Anna. This, um, this one time that we were in Berlin, and we were just on a trip, just to recover actually from uh, last summer. And we were walking in Berlin, and Berlin has of course a large Syrian community, and then we had some uh, food, and then we're walking down some street, and there was an Alawite community center. And, and then we looked at each other and we kind of smiled. We were like, yeah, that's, you know, if this was Anna, she would go inside and maybe find some people to interview. <laughs> but, but what did you do instead? We walked by and we went to have a coffee and just walk around because the weather was nice. And that's what we like, to enjoy life. Coming up, Anna S. is gone, and Amjad is confronted with the truth. There was one last thing Uya and Ansa needed to do before they could close the book on their research into Amjad. And that was to tell him. They knew the truth. Just to clarify, the reason why you did ultimately confront Amjad is because you just felt like this has gone too far now. We've got everything we need out of him. It's time to just end this. Yeah. Because how long do you want to go on courting uh, the, you know, Mukhabarat officer? You can keep going and going, but I think uh, that the... Um, the moment where he opened up about his, his brother and that he committed uh, revenge, that's as close as you can get in this particular context. Yeah. Uya put it another way too. He said it felt like the two of them had been scuba divers, submerged in this world that most of us never have to think about. And after four years, 
it was time to come up for air. Over Facebook Messenger, they sent Amjad a short clip of the video of the Tadaman massacre. We sent him a sequence of the video, like 14 seconds. And the first question was, Isn't, is that me in the video? And I said, yes, it's, uh, it's you. And it said, uh, he said, no, um, yeah, it's me, but what did, does this video tell? Nothing. I'm arrested someone. And it's my job. It's what I do usually. First, he downplayed it. So what? That video doesn't really show anything. Then he tried to blame the brutality on others, his rivals, who he suspected had leaked Ansar the video. They're the thugs, he told her. I'm not like them. And then, finally, he stopped denying it. I'm proud of what I did, he told her in a text message. One night, after midnight, Amjad called again. Ansar didn't record it, but she'll never forget his message. He started banking that we have uh, the video, I have the evidence, threatening me. Like what? Uh, I come to kill you. I'll kill your father. You will not escape from me. You think you have something against me? He didn't see anything other than the excerpt of the video, nothing, but he assumed you had more, yeah? No. Yeah. Uh, then uh, that last uh, last threat, we decided to block him, and uh, we blocked him. She hasn't heard from him since. He's tried to add her again on Facebook, but she's keeping her distance. She's since heard that Amjad himself has been interrogated by Syrian intelligence. Do you think they have any idea what they've been part of? I think now, yes. Why? I think Amjad is uh, a clever man and he's an integrator. When he thought about it from the beginning, uh, I think uh, he has a full picture in his mind about what happened. In December, Ansar got a call from Amjad's boss, one of the people she'd been interviewing as Anna. I had a call with him in December, the boss, as if nothing happened with Amjad. So he said, when are you returning to Syria? We will do kind of, it's a, a metaphor from the Syrian regime. <laughs> we will take you in a trip. That was a threat? It was. In February, Uyur and Ansa passed their footage of the Tadaman massacre and all the evidence they'd collected of the crimes committed by members of Branch 227, including Amjad, to prosecutors in the Netherlands, France and Germany. Earlier this year, in Germany... A former colonel from President Assad's regime in Syria has been found guilty of crimes against humanity. We saw the first ever prosecution of a Syrian military intelligence official, a man named Anwar Raslan, for his role in overseeing the murder of at least 27 prisoners and the torture of at least 4,000 others. This is a landmark case, and of course it's about justice being done, but it's also about gathering a body of evidence for the future. He was convicted of crimes against humanity and has been in prison for life. And the verdict really sends out a very strong message to Syrian authorities that justice will reach them and that they cannot escape it. Um, It's raised some faint hope that the impunity that surrounds the crimes committed by the Syrian government and its agents might one day be broken. 
Uya and Ansar hope their material will form part of a future case against Amjad Yusuf himself. And they'll be publishing their research in the form of an 8,000-word article sometime this year. In the end, working with their team on the ground, they managed to identify five of the people who were killed in the hole that day. They say it's too risky to get in touch with their families, that it would only put them in danger. For now, the wives and daughters, sons and husbands of people in the hole are just a few of the hundreds of thousands of Syrians who know someone who disappeared one day during the war and never came back. Eventually, Uyur and Ansa might be able to tell them, we know what happened to your loved ones. We know what happened in this one massacre in one neighbourhood of one Syrian city among hundreds. That people out there in the world spent time investigating it. We've been able to tell this story thanks to their work and thanks to the contribution of a young recruit to a militia working with the Syrian government who saw a video on a laptop and decided he had to let someone know. Sometime in the past year, for his safety, we can't be more specific than that, Uya and Ansa made contact with that young man, the source of the video, the guy we told you about right at the beginning of yesterday's episode. Uya and Ansa told him about their research, that his video had made it out into the world, was in good hands. They helped him get out of Syria. He crossed the border sometime in the past few months. He's somewhere safe. Ansa is done going undercover, working in the shadows. The work has taken so much from her. But in a strange way, she told me that as a woman who'd been involved in the Syrian revolution, watched it descend into violence, playing Anna and being forced to relate to so many from the other side had also been kind of therapeutic. This is, this is totally different from you are a victim. You have a power, a different power, power of knowledge. The power of knowledge uh, gives you distance and understanding. Um, talking to all these people, perpetrators, I saw other side of the conflict, something we were uh, absent from for years. I was in the ground on homes. I was obsessed with who is dying, who is not, as, as well in my hometown, who is arrested, who is not. But we didn't know nothing about the other side. Knowing how the other side lived, I had different view of the conflict. And, uh, and I think it was uh, therapeutic a bit in a way or other. And um, yeah, so talking to this guy was difficult for sure. But also was part of my process of healing as an individual, as a Syrian individual. That it was healing to know the narrative of the other side? Yes. So some people were victims as well, as well they were perpetrators. It doesn't defend them, actually, and their brutality. But you can see that the whole picture is much complicated than what we thought when we, are, we were in Syria, or like five, six couple uh, years ago. Yeah, and they are individual, they have different stories like us. So that's why I think it's healing. Before we go, there's just one last thing. If you visited the Syrian suburb of Tadaman now, 
you'd see a neighbourhood transformed. It's been rebuilt. People are out shopping, sitting in cafes, smoking and drinking coffee. Uya says there's no sign of the massacres that happened at the hole. Unless you knew what you were looking for. So if you, I mean, if you would be an unsuspecting passerby and you're travelling through the Tadaman neighbourhood right now and you're, and you're crossing through the hole, then what you would see is, gosh, there's an awful lot of CCTV here and there's a lot of checkpoints here. Why? The regime is fully in control of this entire area. So the, the, there's a kind of inexplicable uh, security overdrive here. But that's because the regime knows, uh, the intelligence knows what happened there. They don't want people snooping. Uya and Ansar tried to send someone to the site. Today, it's a local headquarters for the Syrian Red Crescent. Their guy tried to get footage of what it looks like now, but the CCTV and all the security scared him off. The guy returned terrified. There are some YouTube clips. So these are rather propagandistic clips on YouTube where an individual is taking a GoPro camera and walking through Damascus neighborhoods to show you know, how we're rebuilding, quote-unquote. There is a video for Tadamun neighborhood. And as I go through it, I was watching this video, which is 10 to 12 minutes, uh, and I was thinking, are they going to cross through this area, uh, which they didn't? But if they paved over, that means that at least some of the bodies are either underground, but if they have erased the evidence and paved over it, then people are just leading happy lives, their children playing on, that, uh, on the asphalt. In 2013, it's basically forgotten. And so an unsuspecting person walking past that area wouldn't have a clue why it's so secure, but, but now we know why. Yeah, we know why. That was Ansa Shahood and her research partner, Uya Ungo. Thank you so much to them, as well as to Martin Chulov, The Guardian's Middle East correspondent, whose coverage of this leak and investigation can be found at theguardian.com. That is it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mythley Rao. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.